our time today, we get to use these shiny new Bibles. Pretty nice. Let's go to Psalm 20. Page 539 in your pew Bibles. The heading there is to the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have another psalm of David, Psalm 20. Maybe not as well known to you as, say, Psalm 22 or Psalm 23, and yet it is, it's a good psalm to think about, especially as we move towards this in liturgical year, a day of ascension. Now David, of course, knew many things. God had given to him all kinds of life experiences. As a very young man, as a boy probably, he was a shepherd taking care of the sheep. As he grew older, he told us that he had destroyed the bear and ripped the lions with his bare hands. He was a powerful, amazing shepherd. And then God called this shepherd boy to become the shepherd of all his sheep. But that didn't happen right away. Even though David was anointed, it was going to take some time for David to ascend the throne and then even to draw all the people together. In the meantime, he became a warrior, a great warrior. We know that he took on Goliath as as a young man, Goliath who stood some three meters tall, that great big man, that servant of the devil, that seed of Satan. And David said, I come to you in the name of the Lord, and I tell you, this day you're going to die. And he did die, and David held up his head. And I think about sometimes, this is David who cut off that giant's head and held it up, and he writes all these beautiful psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, and the Lord bless you, and all of these things. It's really an interesting thing, this man of the arts and of music could be so violent, but all in the service of Almighty God. In time, he killed his 10,000 while Saul was killing his thousands as the women sang about them. And then, well, Saul got upset, and we know about that. He became envious and jealous, and then he lost his way with Almighty God. And, and he then became a tool of the devil, going after David, the Lord's anointed, the seed of the woman. And that, that enmity is still there, and now within the covenant community. And so David knew what it was like to stand opposed to enemies, not only from the outside, but inside the church. And so the Lord moved him to write other songs, like, my God, why have you forsaken my, why are you so far away from me, and yet still always coming back? The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I have confidence, he says, that the Lord will bless his anointed one. These words are remarkable, remarkable from this 
artist, warrior, this killer poet. And there we have before us from Psalm 20, not only a psalm, but a liturgy. I tried to do it a little bit by pausing there for you, but verses 1 through 5 are the congregation coming together to pray and sing to the king, to the real king, Almighty God, on behalf of the king, King David. But it's David who wrote the liturgy. It's David who, by the Holy Spirit, was inspired to write these words that I hope you will see also ought to be your words because we serve the son of David, the anointed one, the one whom God always blesses. And then in verses 6 through 8, we have a single voice. Now, probably it was the king, although I think it might depend on how well the king sang he wasn't that good. I read that uh, maybe someone from the Levites would sing for him. But now someone is going to sing for the king. So the people sing to God, and then the king comes back, and he inspires them to be confident in the Lord God. And then everything ends with that Hosanna, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So that will be sort of our format when we see that the king leads the people of God in prayer as the church militant. In verses 1 through 5, the congregation brings their prayer to God on behalf of the king. And then verses 6 through 8, the king proclaims his confidence in his God. And then in verse 9, once more, the people bring their petition in behalf of the king. So David moves the people probably during a time just before a war. We think that David was getting the people ready for a battle, and he knew that as great a warrior as he was, and as powerful as a leader that he was, he absolutely needed Almighty God. There was no way that he is going to win. Basically what he is saying, if God is with us, who can be against us? My help, our help, is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. God is our refuge and our strength. People, you need to be in prayer for me. You need to be in prayer that my work, my will, and my desires will be those of God himself. That the leader and God are joined in perfect harmony. Now that, that kind of gets us back to the Garden of Eden when God creates Adam in his own image and then Ephesians and Colossians and the Catechism teaches us in true righteousness and holiness that we might tra- rightly know God. So that when Almighty God gives that image to Adam and to Eve, they can have dominion over the earth on his behalf. They want what he wants, they think like he thinks, they do what they're supposed to do, and they don't do what they're not supposed to do. Now we know what happened, there's the fall into sin and the brokenness that happens, and then in time God has different authority that he places. At the beginning it was through the fathers of the families and then the clans, and then in time Moses and Joshua and then the judges, and now we are in the days of the king. But all of that leadership, all human leadership, is absolutely dependent upon Almighty God. May the Lord answer you, king, in the day of trouble, in in the clay of distress, in, in the dire mire of tribulation and struggle. When things are looking their worst, may the Lord be with you. When you cry out, King David, may the Lord answer you and take care of you. Why? That the name of God would be elevated and glorified. 
May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So notice that in verse 1 we have those two names of God. We have Yahweh. And Yahweh is always interesting, right? I don't even know if I say it properly. Whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. And then we know from Exodus 3.14 that that is I am, or I am that I am. But how do you explain that to somebody? I mean, sometimes as ministers we try, but what are you supposed to say I am that I am. My neighbors in the United States used to say, I is what I is. What does that even mean? God is independent. Interestingly enough, and, and, and maybe even humbling to me, he, he never needs to come to me for advice. He knows everything. He is everything. Everything comes from him. He needs nothing. He absolutely doesn't need anything from us. He just is. I mean, his name is the infinite verb. And that's just a marvelous, amazing thing. That is your God. And that's his relationship name. May you, king, be blessed by the one who is in relationship with you. He is the Elohim, the God of Jacob. So Elohim is a word that speaks to God as the creator and the governor of the universe, to his providence, to his care of everything. And then when you put those two things together, the most powerful, independent I am, who is able to take care of everything because he made everything, may he be with you. And if he's with you, can you imagine what we can do? Can you imagine the confidence that we can have? That we cry out to the Lord for in our position, then, it would be for the leadership of this church. Lord God, please be with the elders, because we're in a battle. We've just been through a battle, and we are going through more and more battles. And we need a godly leadership, and we need them to be blessed and taken care of by God. We need a diaconate who's going to lead us in mercy in this world of hatred and in this world of greed and in this world of, of envy and, and, and desire for material goods, say, this is how you use these things. But God needs to be with them. And they need to be in a relationship with God, as do the elders, and so too our pastor. That the man of God who brings the word for us would bring it with an authority in harmony with Almighty God, with, with a restoration of the Edemic office. May the Lord protect you. And, and he uses the word God of Jacob because it is a term of redemption that God speaks of, of redeeming Jacob, the house of Jacob, from the land of Egypt. As God was with the house of Jacob and redeemed him, them, in the time of trouble, may the Lord God be with you. Powerful stuff. And beautiful words from the king that he asks and writes so that the people would pray on his behalf. May he, God, send you help from the sanctuary. The word sanctuary there literally means a place set apart for a holy activity. It's a little bit different here than the temple because the temple hasn't been built. But what David has done, or God through David really, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The ark is there, and that word sanctuary is connected to that concept. So that is symbolically where God is. Now, David knows, and Israel knows, and all God's people know. You, you, can't, you can't take God and then, and then hold him down to the ark, and he's only there in Jerusalem. 
But we know that symbolically there was a sense that when the congregation gathers together in a place where they can bring their offerings and bring their prayers, and when they do that together corporately, there's something amazing and something marvelous happening. I want you to think about that for a minute. Remember what we said. They're looking at a war. They're looking at that the enemy is going to come in. Because the devil is always after the church. Read Revelation 12. And we read there about the dragon who goes after the child. And then after the child is taken up into heaven, he turns his attention to the church. That's not just what's going to happen. That's what's always been happening. Didn't God say that I put enmity between your seed and her seed? He said that to the devil. And he said that to, uh, about the woman. And ultimately, that seed is Jesus Christ. And that's why also I think we need to begin to understand Sometimes people will say, oh, you're wrong, right? Because you Reformed people or you Christian people say that there was Israel and that Israel became the church. No, Israel always was the church. Israel was filled with Christians, faithful people who believed in the coming of Jesus Christ. They believed in the same Christ you do with the ability and the knowledge that they had at that time. You know more. You have the Holy Spirit in you as opposed to beside you. But nonetheless, they are our brothers. Wouldn't you say Abraham's your brother? Abel's your brother? Noah's your brother? David? That's the church. And the devil's been doing everything he can to destroy the church. And that's why he's going after the king. Satan has already tried to get rid of David by Goliath. He's already tried to get rid of David by Saul. And now he's going to try again. You know, sometimes you wonder about the devil, like, What's the definition of insanity? One of them, if you keep doing something over and over and over again and expecting a different result. I mean, this man is angel of death. is banging his head against the wall. He cannot kill the anointed of God in the sense that he could drag them down into eternal hell. And we need to pray out of that understanding that if God of Jacob is our help, then it's not even God plus one is a majority. God is the majority. God is fighting that battle. Joshua didn't win the battle of Jericho. God did. Joshua and the judges didn't win the Holy Land. God did. And now God is going to take care of David. And and we pray for that, not only then for our leaders, but we pray also out of the wonder of the fulfillment that God has said yes and amen to this liturgy in Jesus Christ. May he grant you your heart's desire. And fulfill all your plans. Now that's based on verse 3. May he remember all your offerings when regard you favor your burnt sacrifices. There's some discussion about the offerings. I'm not going to give you all of that. But just are they guilt offerings? Likely there's something along the line of a guilt offering. But they're like the, the uh, sacrifices that Abel brought. And Noah brought. And Abraham brought where you you bring sacrifices to win the favor of the Lord, to express your love for the Lord. And then we read about those sacrifices that the smoke went up in a pleasing and soothing way to Almighty God. God, you're with us. We are with you. And now David the king shows that he's also anointed in the sense that he is the prophet. He wrote the liturgy and the words, but he's also a priest. He's bringing sacrifices to Almighty God. He's showing the desire of his heart. See, the people know that that king is faithful. May he grant you, faithful king, the desire of your faithful heart. We talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit, and it's difficult sometimes 
to understand the difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament, pre- and post-Pentecost. So we talk about the paraclete, that the paraclete comes in around you and pulls you in. And that's very much the way God works in the Old Testament. And we see that there's a renewing of the image of God in David. He is the man after God's own heart. That, that didn't come to him naturally. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We're all born children of wrath, yet you he made alive again. And that's what happened with David. Again, don't make too big a distinction between the Old and the New Testament there. God is with David. God has converted David, and the people see it. So if you go to Psalm 1, we read that the righteous meditate on the law of God. Psalm 2, those righteous people who meditate on the law of God kiss the Son. They kiss the Anointed One because they know God has appointed Him to rule and to bring destruction to everybody who is opposed to God and His Anointed. And they see it in David. David, as we go to war and you make your plans, may God bless your desire that we will be safe, that we will win the victory, that we're going to win the battle, that there's no king stronger than you, that the glory of God will be elevated, that the people of God will be exalted. David, we know that that's what's on your heart. And we want God to bless that. God, please bless that, even as you bless those sacrifices, that we may shout for joy. Did you see how the attitude changes in verse 5? We will shout for joy over your salvation. Hebrew can do this better than the English, but... They're speaking as if they've already won before the battles ever happened. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You know what that is, beloved? That's the book of Revelation. That's the book of Revelation right there. What's the book of Revelation about? In all things we are more than conquerors. That Jesus says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. We win. We have won. We're going to win. We are not going to lose. God is with us. Who can be opposed? Jesus Christ is our King. And Jesus Christ, when He comes again, He's going to defeat the last enemy, and the last enemy is death. Satan's on his way out. The demons are on their way out. The nation of Islam is on their way out. Rome is gone. Greece is gone. The Medes and Persians, they're gone. Look at Revelation 19. The church is singing hallelujah. Not at first for the wedding feast of the Lamb, but because Babylon is burning. In heaps, our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come. Destroy every force that opposes you. And then we think of those beautiful words of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers together, against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on my holy hill. And then he comes and he makes a promise to David, I took you out of the, sh- the flocks. I took you out of the shepherd's fields. I've brought you now to the kingdom. I am going to be with you. You walk with me and I'll walk with you. And your son and my son are going to build a house. First the temple and then ultimately your son and my son. And this is where the premillennialists get it wrong. Not the throne in Jerusalem on this earth but the throne of God in heaven that we see in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 where Jesus is. When you go to Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, you go to kingdom headquarters. You get to find out what else, what's going to happen. And you're going to find out that we are going to overcome and that God is with us. Do we need to pray for Jesus in that same way? Well, it wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing. Lord God, grant the desire of Jesus' heart. 
Grant that his plans will come to fruition. Grant that all the number of the elect will be saved. Grant that the church will be protected. Grant that the gates of Hades will never prevail against the church. And then what do we do? We lift up our banners. We think in Numbers 2, verse 2, where God's people are all around Mount Sinai, and we read that the Israelites camped around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard and banner. That means we're going into battle with a sign that already says we won. Now, I want to ask you, do you live that way? Because this can't just be theoretically wonderful psalm. This is your psalm. God wrote this for David to point you to Christ for you. Do you live in this confidence? Do you believe this I mean, really, when we go around the church today and we talk to one another, aren't we rattled? We can't figure out what's going on in Ottawa. We can't understand what our prime minister is doing, a prime minister who said there's no room for us in his Canada, in a Canada where where we have the biggest peaceful protest year to year and, and they still want to kill the unborn, in a Canada where they can't figure out male and female, in a Canada where they can't figure out what marriage is, where they don't understand, like when we hear that child cry, yeah, and they don't even get it. When we live in a world where the leaders are supposed to be the servants of Christ, to bring their prayers and their offerings and pray, Lord God, be with us. And then we go, oh no. What if we can't continue doing Christian education the way we've done it? What if we can't keep meeting the way we're meeting right now? But I'm wondering... And I, I include myself in this. Are we more rattled because we might be losing our lifestyle? That we won't be able to travel the way we always have wanted to travel. That we can't have the dairy the way we've always wanted to have the dairy. That we've been making a whole lot of coin and maybe we won't be able to or our money isn't going as far as it used to be. Are we rattled because we're losing a lifestyle or because we're really seeing the persecution that's coming and it's coming? And when it comes, what does the church do? I mean, the devil keeps trying, but what does the church do? Or what are we going to do? Reverend Dykstra is going to call a prayer service, and the elders are going to call a prayer service, and we're going to chase the devil away. Because when the church is praying, and the church is offering, and when the church is praying for the work of Jesus Christ, the devil gets lost. He's gone. Because he can't stand opposed to this. And we're going to sing. And we're going to bring glory to the Lord. And if they shut us up, we'll do it in the prison. And if they shut us up, we'll do it in our basements. But we'll do it. Because God is with us. Because our King will lead us in it. Don't be afraid. I am with you even to the end of the age. And then Jesus says, and now we're moving into our second point, what David says. Verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. Think about that, eh? I know, says David, that the Lord saves His anointed. Don't be scared, people. I want to give you confidence today. I want you to know that as we head out into that battle, we are going to win. We are going to dominate. We are going to come home as victorious because God is with us. And the world will know that God is with us. And how many times didn't that come true with David? That the Lord was with him. The world saw that the Lord was with him. Jonathan saw that the Lord was with him. And even said, i gotta, I got to cut ties with my dad's house and I've got to hook up with him. It's obvious that the Lord has anointed him. But then how much more Jesus Christ? How do we explain that we're here together? Because we're so holy or we're so reformed or because we're all that? 
It's because God has moved you to come here. And even you children who didn't want to come this afternoon, maybe I should say you teenagers who didn't want to come this afternoon, you're still here. And you're here by the will of Almighty God. You're here by the will of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is gathering and defending the church. Do you believe? Do you believe that the Lord is with and saves His anointed? Because Jesus Christ, He's in the Gethsemane. He brings forth His petitions and the desires of His heart. Not my will, but your will be done. And then He heads off to Golgotha. All alone. One man against the world. Christ contra mundum. And he hangs there on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out, It is finished. It's all done. All the work that I needed to do is finished. He goes into the grave and up from the grave he arose. And then he walks on the earth for 40 days. He gets the disciples ready. He says, I know you're troubled and I know this is difficult for you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You just continue in Jerusalem and you watch what's going to happen. And then he, he goes up into heaven, probably giving the ironic blessing with his hands up, and they look up, and the last thing he says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. God will answer David from his holy heaven. Beautiful, eh? From the sanctuary, no, from holy heaven. From Revelation 4 and 5, from headquarters where God is having dominion over the earth, and now through Jesus Christ, on earth now with David. With the saving hand of his, with the saving might of his right hand. So the idea of the right hand is there's fellowship and also power. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God. He was saved from sin, death, and hell. John 10 tells us that Jesus says, I raised my life up, and, and elsewhere we read that God raised him up. God gave his only son. That if whoever believes that we die, yet shall he lives again. Death is being defeated. The devil's being defeated. God is, is going, bringing an end to this enmity. God answers the king. And then the king says, some trust in chariots. And some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's interesting, by the way, because when David wrote this, Israel was moving into the Iron Age and uh, moving into the time of chariot and horse warfare. They didn't have it. They were actually way behind the times. Even though they were winning battles, if you think of the days of, of Deborah and Barak at Megiddo, remember all those chariots? Israel didn't have any. What did God do? He just sent the rain, and then they were stuck in the mud, and then it was just basically a pot shoot. It was like picking off fish in a barrel. And God destroyed them. David knows that. Look at Israel walking through the Red Sea, the greatest army on the face of the planet, the most powerful man on the face of the planet, the horse and the rider God threw into the sea. If God is with us, who can be against us? If God is with his anointed, what is the world going to do to us? They can't win. And by the way, the, the gates of Hades prevailing against the church, there's two ways to look at that. One is simply that, that they can't dominate us, but the other is that we get to start kicking down the gates of Hades. There's no place on the planet we're not allowed to go. Because the world belongs to God, it belongs to Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and you're the body of Christ. You're the military. You are the soldiers of the cross. You can go, beloved. You're going to win. Don't be afraid. Do you see how you have the might of God? We talked about the Lord, the great I Am, the Elohim, the Creator, the uh, sanctuary, um, also the support from Zion, all of those things. 
you think of Isaiah chapter 40 where God says, who will you liken me to? I am a God of strength. There's no one who can compare to me. I know all the stars. If I know the stars, I know you. And then he says, I give strength to you. Even your young men, your best men, your military and your athletic men, they'll grow weary, but I'll give them strength. I will take care of you. The powerful God shares his strength with the anointed, and then the anointed says he will share his strength with me and with us. So put your trust in chariots. How's that going for Putin? He's supposed to be the most powerful guy, at least in that part of the world, and he can't beat Ukraine. Do you think that's because Ukraine is so phenomenally gifted? Or do you think God's doing something? That Jesus Christ is doing something. You can't win a war just because you have the most weapons. God, Jesus Christ, is controlling the events of history. And by the way, God isn't having a bad day. And Jesus Christ doesn't have a bad day. Everything's going according to plan, and the king's desires, because they're God's desires, are being blessed. We will trust in the name of Yahweh, the Creator. And what will happen to them? They're going to collapse and fall. But we rise and stand straight. So if you take those words, uh, we rise and stand straight, and then we go back up to verse 1. So may the name of the Lord, our God of Jacob, protect you in other um, translations, it's defense. But that's really not a very good translation. What it actually says, may he lift you up. May he exalt you. May you stand up. And then when you put that together, he's saying, if we put our trust in the name of the Lord our God, our enemies will fail, but we rise and stand upright. And if I may borrow, and not because it's the word of God, but because I think he's on to something, Jordan Peterson is on to something, I think, for all of us Christians. We got to stop slouching around. We got to stop being so apologetic and defensive. When we get into these arguments about sexuality or what's right and what's wrong, let's stand up. We've got to get our backs straight. We've got to handle ourselves as the princes and princesses we are of the royal family. We are correct. That doesn't give us the right to be arrogant, but we're right. We are speaking the truth. Yes, we have to speak the truth in love, but speaking the truth in love is not cowering. It's not crawling. It's not creeping away, or I don't know the answer. Thus says the Lord. Because the church in Canada has stopped doing it, and it's become a disaster. Please don't let that happen here. Stand up and live right. Stand up as the champions you are. Stand up as the prophet and the priest and the kings, as the anointed people you are. May the Lord bless the desires of your hearts, and may he bless the thoughts and your plans, the more and more they are in accordance with his. Do you believe, beloved? Do people know you believe? Don't be scared. No more fear. The only thing we have to fear is that we're going to go to hell, writes John. And if you're not going to hell, there's nothing else to fear. What are they going to do? The body they may kill? God's truth abides still. It's time to stand up and say, get behind me, Satan. 
One of the commentators writing about Psalm 20 talked about Peter. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? After Peter, right, he said, Oh, Lord God, you know, you don't have to die. I'm going to go through all these things for you. And then, then Jesus said, Peter, I'm praying for you because safe, Satan is coming after you. He wants to sift you. And then what does Peter do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He falls asleep. And then he denies Jesus three times. And when he hears that rooster crow, he must go, I should have been praying. He denied Jesus because he became a coward. He forgot the king he was serving. Please let that never be said of us, and if it has been true of us, then let's repent and believe and then go forward. No more trust in us, and no more fear of other people's chariots or tanks or wealth or governmental power. We serve Jesus. We belong to him. And in him we are victorious. They collapse we rise and fall. And that brings us then to the end. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. It's an interesting thing. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And then ultimately that has to be pointing to Christ. That when you bring your prayers through Christ, he will answer you. Are you going through a fearful time? Maybe you're at work and somebody's really coming after you about your faith. Maybe you are filled with anxiety about some of the things that we think. Get on your knees and pray. Lord, save us. Thank you, Lord God, for what you've done in Jesus Christ. Because when we pray, Jesus has won the victory over Satan who wants us to deny God, to not believe in him, and to not put our trust in him. And so David is moved by Almighty God in his kingly office to teach us as a prophet to bring his offerings as a priest and then to lead us liturgically also as a priest. And may the office bearers of that, our church continue to do that and may we as the prophet, priest, and king go forward as the soldiers of Christ that we would stand up for Jesus, that we would be confident and that we will remember that Babylon will fall, and that we are looking forward to the great wedding feast when Jesus Christ comes again. And he says, Lo, I am coming soon, and I am bringing my reward with me. And the church and the bride say, Come. Or the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, Oh, I'm coming soon. But until then, I am with you, even to the end of the age. You shall overcome. And in all things, you are more than conquerors. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us strength and give us courage. Give us straight backs. Let us stand up for Jesus as soldiers of the cross. Give us words to speak. Give us faith and help our unbelief. Bless our pastor as he leads us in this excursion. And may he give us words that fill us with confidence. Be with our elders, the ones that are here and the ones that will be taking their place in time. Provide for us through them diligent leadership, leadership we can follow into the battle fray, taking care of one another, led by the wonder of the deacons. And Father in heaven, we pray that you would use us in our own role and task in the army. But Lord, please just give us a confidence that Jesus Christ has ascended he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom has no end, world without end. Amen and amen.
Shall we sing together the